My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. Say bonjour and bienvenue to one of the earliest titans of the French film industry. This is the ninth episode of the History of Film. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Film. It is a beautiful, cold, and wet January here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and as the wild bells ring out for a new year, I have a quick announcement. My New Year's resolution, which is to change the roughly monthly release schedule of this program to a bi-weekly one. Thank you all so much for listening. I find making this podcast immensely fulfilling, and I hope you find it fulfilling and useful as well. I also have a quick correction. My own struggling efforts to study French and some helpful comments have taught me that the cinematography of the Lumiere brothers is more logically called the cinematograph, which is what I will refer to it as from now on. I'm also embarrassed to say that I read La Guerre, meaning the train station, as Le Gras, which I assumed was a place in France. So, when I was talking about the train arrives at the station in Le Gras, that was me just absolutely misreading it, and it is actually the train arrives at the Gare, meaning the station. I hope that you will all be impressed with my mastery of the French language decades from now, but for the moment, I appreciate your patience as I try to talk about the amazing movies, historical events, and filmmakers that created the history of cinema all across the globe in diverse languages. With all that said, on with our feature presentation. As no doubt you already know from today's title and introductory line, this episode is about the early French film industrialist Charles Pathé and the formation of one of the two oldest still extant film production companies in the world, Pathé Studios. We've actually talked about Pathé briefly during our episode about Georges Méliès, but this episode is in much greater detail. In the year 2021, people who dream of and succeed in becoming filmmakers track their inspiration to movies and television that resonated with them. These people usually point to cinema that made an impact on them, and through it realized that making movies was what they wanted to do. But for the earliest filmmakers, that wasn't really possible. After all, you can't be inspired by movies to make movies if no movies exist yet. Soon, people like Alfred Hitchcock and Ingmar Bergman would become enthralled with what they called the cinematic art. But as we have seen, most of the early filmmakers became involved in cinema because of adjacent activities and passions. George Albert Smith and Georges Méliès both had backgrounds in stage performance. Robert Paul was a talented electrician. Thomas Edison had already worked to invent audio playback and wanted to enhance it with a visual component, and the Lumiere brothers owned a photographic plate factory. It is easy to see how people working in these industries could become early converts to the cult of filmmakers and cineasts that paved the way for modern film. For Charles Moran Pathé, it was his connections to the phonograph that would lead him to become the person who, in his own words, did not invent the cinema, but industrialized it. Charles Pathé was born the third son of Jacques and Emilie Pathé on the day after Christmas, 1863. Much like any other filmmakers just mentioned, it wasn't until his adulthood that he became film-adjacent. Pathé's parents were pork butchers, not artists, and he later described his earliest days as, quote, difficult. As a young man, Charles entered the French military, and after spending five years in its service, traveled to greener pastures in Argentina to seek his fortune. 
in what must have seemed decidedly unfortunate to him at the time, Charles found no fortune, nor could he make one, and returned to France in the early 1890s. He married in 1893 and earned a small salary as a lawyer. Soon after his marriage, Pathé would have an encounter that would succeed in making his fortune where his foreign travels had failed him. In a fairgrounds near Paris, Pathé saw the great spell of the Wizard of Menlo Park, Thomas Edison, the phonograph. Pathé quickly saw the phonograph's potential as an entrepreneurial endeavor, and with some money of his own and borrowing a little more, he purchased one. Following the original Edison pay-by-listen model we discussed in episode 3, Pathé and his wife went to a popular fair on their own in 1894 and charged 20 centims for a single listen from their newly purchased phonograph. In one day, they made 200 francs. I was trying to find a way to understand how much 200 francs is worth today so I could get an idea of how that would have seemed to Pathé, but it wasn't easy to do on the English-speaking web. The best that I came up with was from historicalstatistics.org and using an additional inflation calculator to find that 200 francs could buy in Sweden in 1894 what 1,111 euros could buy in Sweden today. Another way of describing it is to say that it would have taken a Swedish laborer 593 hours worth of work to make that much money in 1894. So Pathé, in one day, made the equivalent of well over a thousand euros that would have taken him hundreds of hours to get otherwise. It's no wonder that it seemed to him that media exhibition would be his life's calling. It wasn't too long after this that Pathé began to sell phonograph machines and Edison and Dixon kinetoscope peep show devices after he had purchased some from our friend Robert Paul in England in 1895. Pathé had established a shop in Paris when the Lumière's cinematograph took the world by storm. Sensing a change in the winds, Pathé formed a company with his brother Emile, named after themselves. The Pathé company would go on to produce an incredible amount of content for the phonograph and for moving pictures. The trademark symbol of the company was the rooster, which would be used in all of their movies to designate its producers. The Pathé Company still uses the rooster symbol today, though in a different art style. While Emile Pathé was tasked with working on the phonograph side of the new company, Charles was head of the film side of the business. Between 1900 and 1903, Pathé acquired or developed the business so his company became known as, and get ready for this, take a deep breath, Le Compagnie Générale des Phonographes, Cinématographes et Appareils de Persécution. And I will remind my compassionate audience that I am but the most ignorant student of French. Just as the Pathé Company name seems to have a dominating interest in words, the Pathé Compagnie Générale sought to dominate film production. Pathé manufactured negative and positive film, created and controlled factories and film studios, and marketed film cameras and their projectors across the globe. So if you were lucky, you would be able to buy your camera and projector from Pathé, buy your film from Pathé, take it to a Pathé studio and record, have your film processed and developed by Pathé, and then distributed by Pathé. At the very least, this gave Charles an incredible amount of power in the world film industry, and even more in the domestic French market. At the very most, it gave him a monopoly, which I have read it described as. But what did Pathé do with this unprecedented power to control the production of movies? He produced movies, of course, with the help of his great director, Ferdinand Zika. Pathé hired Zika for a few weeks' worth of work, which ended up becoming a working relationship that lasted 20 years. Zika became one of Pathé's earliest star directors, producing impressive work, including Conquering the Air in 1901, 
which uses an impressive trick of photography to make it look like a person is riding a magical bicycle across the city sky. 1901 also saw the Zika Pathé Partnership produce History of a Crime, one of the first pure dramas in film history, which also pioneered superimposition and the narrative device of the flashback, as well as ending with a particularly impressive beheading scene, which, minus the blood, is very convincing, and remains so to this day. Zika also made a Méliès-style film called The Seven Chateaus of the Devil that year, a special effects picture where the devil takes a young man through a seven mansions of sin. The Seven Chateaus of the Devil uses many of the best special effects techniques of the day to great effect, though perhaps with less finesse than Georges Méliès, who is clearly a significant influence on the piece. I will post these movies on the website, as always, for your viewing pleasure. In 1903, Zika co-directed the monumental Pathé production, The Passion and the Life of Christ, a whopping 45-minute-long biblical epic covering the outline of the life of Jesus Christ. With its impressive runtime, The Passion and the Life of Christ was one of the earliest feature-length films ever created, and with it, the idea of going to movies to see a collection of short films would begin its long decline. Over decades, the movie-going experience would largely, though never completely, shift to going to the movies to see one longer film and its accoutrement. Until now, most people go to the movies just to see one film, the sole feature of the entertainment. The beginning of going to the pictures to see something specific starts here as does the biblical epic, which would become a staple of cinema and an important American tentpole in the early and mid-20th century. Zika would go on to produce many, many more films for Pathé, but we will not cover them here. Contemporaneously, Pathé began to produce films for the actor-director, Max Linder. Linder was featured in some earlier Pathé movies, but he came into his own in 1907, when he began to play lead roles. As Linder stepped into those leading roles, he created a character, sharing his own name, and became the first great silent clown. The on-screen character Linder made had a very similar visual style to Charlie Chaplin's famous Tramp character, though achieving it through opposite personality. Linder was rich, well-dressed, and precocious in his movies, and is, honestly, hilarious. Linder's filmmaking lacks some of the polish of the later silent masters like Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd, but his gags read surprisingly well to modern audiences. He was a hit, and honestly still should be. Linder's popularity increased to the point that he became a draw for audiences to see his films regardless of their content, and so became one of the first movie stars, though largely less remembered than the American actress Florence Lawrence, who often claims the title of first star. We'll talk about her in future episodes. And for those of you who are thinking about Annamel Moore, who we covered briefly in episode 4, it's true, she was a draw, but star power as it exists here is actually a way of marketing film, though it may seem strange to us who are drawn into theaters because Chris Pratt or Aquafina are in a movie. We will cover star power marketing a lot in not too many episodes from now. And I know I've just mentioned several things that we will cover, but film history is long and we have a lot to talk about. Anyway, Max Linder was one of many people working for Pathé, and as the 1900s rolled into the now infamous 1910s, the Pathé empire continued to grow. As Charles Pathé grew in power, so did his sphere of influence. Pathé employed a large number of employees across every aspect of film creation, and made a lot of it. Beginning in 1904, Pathé began to establish foreign film studios in Moscow and New York, and by 1910, he had established film studios in Italy, Jersey City, USA, Holland, Belgium, 
and other distant locales. He also became a distributor for Georges Méliès, and Pathé's exacting schedule of industrialized film production proved to be the demise of that great magician's film career, as we saw in the saddest parts of episode 7. With the exception of one competitor, Léon Gaumont, who we will talk about in the next episode, Pathé controlled the French film market and was a major player in film industries across the world, including the United States. The dates I've read vary, but between 1908 and 1911, Pathé produced a new kind of cinema, the newsreel. The newsreel is a kind of documentary filmmaking that would most often be played as part of an entertainment block at the movies before the practice ended in the 1970s and 1980s in their latest extremity. The newsreel consisted of collecting moving images, usually shot on location, that would report world events and interest stories to audiences visually, and were the first competitor to newspapers as a way people could learn about current events. In the era before television, it is hard to overstate how world-changing this was. People could see the aftermath of, and even sometimes the events of, great battles, ships being christened, political figures coming to power, and justice being done or not. Newsreels, being animated, had the power that still images just didn't, and would, just as all news, be skewed and censored to affect public opinion. Newsreels would become a staple of the visual diet of people of the early 20th century, and would affect everything, from movies themselves, including the great Citizen Kane, to broader public opinion, especially on the two great conflicts of the 20th century, World Wars I and II. Pathé also pioneered the home video market. In 1910, Pathé produced a system called the Pathé Cook, a 28mm film meant for home recording and home projection. In 1922, Pathé tried the idea again, this time with 9.5mm film, the Pathé Baby system. While used for a small period of time, Pathé Baby lost the format war for home video projection to the lower quality and less expensive 8mm film, which dominated home video recording until the camcorder explosion of the 1980s. But by the time Pathé Baby entered the market, Pathé's empire was already beginning to crumble. The great and terrible bloodletting called World War I devastated Europe and forced people and resources away from film production, in addition to obliterating infrastructure in many European cities. In a story that will become all too familiar, the war in Europe crippled the ability for European filmmakers to make movies and gave filmmakers in the United States the time to develop resources and become the biggest market and supplier for cinema in the silent era. Under these pressures, Pathé was forced to break his monopoly, which, by the way, is a good thing, as monopolies are bad, and sell his company piece by piece. He sold the last piece, creating Kodak Pathé, retiring from the film industry in 1927. Pathé lived a long life and died in Morocco in 1957, on his 94th birthday. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Film. As you can tell, it's sort of a large piece of something. As I was writing this one, I intended it to be about Pathé, Léon Gamont, and Alice Guy Blachet, but as I was doing Léon Gamont, it just became too long and unruly, and I decided I'd have to break the episode up into at least two parts. I felt that would be the best way to do justice to the producers and filmmakers, particularly Alice Guy, who I wanted to highlight in these episodes. Also, having just learned about Max Linder while researching and writing this show, I must say he is exceptional. Linder's work is deeply watchable, especially compared to other things like The Seven Chateaus of the Devil, and he could have a small episode of his own, so expect that coming up in the near future. 
If you'd like to email me with comments, questions, or just to say hi, you can do so at historyoffilm at gmail.com. The show's website is historyoffilmpodcast.com, where you can go to see the movies we talked about in today's episode. If you want to help the show grow, give it a review wherever you listen, and tell people about it. Thank you so much for listening, and join me next time for another exciting episode of the History of Film.